ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. There's a word that pops up almost any time people start to talk about Israel and Palestine. You hear it constantly. Of all the regions in the world, none may have as complicated a history. Israel versus Palestine. This is one of the most difficult stories that has existed in our lifetime. Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it sounds like there are just two sides, but in reality, it's way more complicated than that. Not only that, it's a conflict that seems to only get more complicated as time goes by and as bad things happen. Tensions on Jerusalem's holiest site, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, also known as the Temple Mount, have complicated relations. And yet, for something we all admit is so complicated, there's no shortage of opinion or passion. Israel is the greatest ally that the United States has. Yeah, baby, Palestine all day, baby! Those clips, by the way, were recorded in New York City in 2021, two years before 1,200 Israeli men, women, and children were murdered, and another 240 were kidnapped to Gaza by Hamas terrorists and others who crossed the border that day. Now, I wasn't naive enough to think that those attacks would change people's opinions about the larger conflict, but I did think it might temper passions, at least a little, that maybe, even among the most ardent critics of Israel, there'd be a period of time in which people were sympathetic to those who'd been murdered, especially the children or the infants or the Holocaust survivors. Which is why this protest on October the 8th, the very next day, also in New York City, took me by surprise. This was a rally held by the Democratic Socialists of America. Here's one speaker from that day, Eugene Perrier, a political activist and self-described revolutionary. And as you might have seen, there was some sort of rave or desert party where they were having a great time until the resistance came and electrified hang gliders and took at least several dozen hipsters but I'm sure they're doing very fine, despite what the New York Post says. They were not fine. Per year is referring to a massacre that took place at the Nova Music Festival, and 364 civilians were killed at the festival. Another 40 were abducted to Gaza. It's also the site of some of the worst atrocities of the day, including mass rape of women and girls, before killing them. 
One might be excused for these comments on the basis of ignorance. The fog of war was only the day after these events. But video and images broadcast by the terrorists themselves on October the 7th made most of this clear at the time. In the days that followed, protests echoing the chants heard at this DSA rally broke out at college campuses and in the surrounding areas across the country. Places like the City University of New York. Boise. Harvard. Stanford. That one was a die-in, so, you know, the audio isn't that great. Okay, here's the University of Louisville in the town where I live. One of the more notorious examples came from Cooper Union in New York. On October the 25th, a rally involving about 70 students made its way indoors to the building that contained the college's administrative offices and its library. A number of Jewish students were in the library at the time, and they were visibly recognizable as Jewish. The men were wearing kippahs, the small skull caps, and tzitzit, long white threads that extend from the four corners of their shirts. The librarian was concerned enough to lock the doors, and then the protesters begin banging on them and on the windows. The sound you're hearing is from videos that students posted from inside the library during the incident. In the post we took this audio from, you can just make out some voices. One of them is a student who was wearing a kippah, asking the person next to him to confirm that the doors were locked. They were also calling 911 and calling their parents. Administrators say the doors were only locked for about 10 minutes. Students dispute that. They say they were trapped in the library for 40 minutes. No one disputes that they were scared. A similar incident took place at a rally at Harvard when a Jewish student began taking video of protesters who were also participating in a die-in. They were bothered that he was taking video of their faces and began to demand that he leave. When he didn't, they started to force him out with a wall of bodies shouting at him. Meanwhile, the war came to Gaza. Israel intensified an already existing blockade in Gaza and began a bombardment campaign that had devastating effects on the ground. And while Israeli military spokesmen assured the world that great care was being taken to protect innocent civilians, there have been moments like this one, in a speech from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu speaking to the Israeli people. You must remember what Amalek has done to you. So says our Holy Bible. And we do remember. It's a reference to the book of Deuteronomy, which warns the reader to remember what the Amalekites did to the Hebrews as they came out of Egypt. They didn't meet them on the battlefield. They struck them from behind, attacking the people who would have been at the back of the caravan. Women, children, elderly, sick, weak, 
It was pure barbarism, and the goal was terror. In Jewish tradition, remembering the Amalekites means remembering this cult of death that wanted to destroy the Jewish people, that wanted to inflict terror upon them, one that would reemerge several times in the Hebrew Bible. King Saul faced them in the book of 1 Samuel, and one of his failures was his decision not to destroy them completely, man, woman, and child, as the prophet Samuel had told him to. They appear again in the book of Esther in the form of Haman, their descendant, who seeks to destroy the Jews throughout the kingdom of Persia. Every year, when Jews celebrate Purim, the festival inaugurated in that book, they will read that Deuteronomy passage before they open the book of Esther. Netanyahu isn't wrong to see something of the Amalekites in the brutality of Hamas and their willingness to target women and children. But those who are concerned about the lives of innocent Palestinians, who have nothing to do with Hamas, hear something else in his comments altogether. So extremist, messianic Israeli settlers often invoke Amalek as a justification for the massacre and displacement of the Palestinian people. So that video is making its rounds online because of the religious fundamentalist rhetoric used to justify the absolute terror and brutality that Palestinian civilians are dealing with right now as a result of the military actions by the Israeli government. I think that indeed what we're seeing now in Gaza is a case of genocide. How many more killings is enough for you? Is it a thousand more? Two thousand more? Three thousand more? How many more Palestinians would make you happy if they died? Do you, you, will you be fine if all of the people of Gaza were gone? They're also concerned about the rise of religious extremism among Netanyahu's ranks. In his current government, the defense minister is a man named Itamar Ben-Gavir. Here he is on a news talk show just the other day. <laughs> to be clear, he says, When we say that Hamas should be destroyed, it also means those who celebrate, those who support, and those who hand out candy. They're all terrorists, and they should also be destroyed. Ben-Gavir is one of many Israeli citizens who are living in and expanding settlements in the occupied West Bank. Now, a lot of those settlements are essentially suburbs of Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. But Ben-Gavir lives in one near Hebron, deep in the West Bank, and far more provocative. He's held to a militant ideology opposed to two states since long before October 7th. When you hear people talk about the settler movement in Israel and how it's an obstacle to peace, they're talking about people and politicians like Ben Gavir. And in 2022, as part of his bid to return to power in Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu made him and the political party he leads part of his coalition government. Ever since its founding, Israel has occupied a unique place in the global conscience. It's weird. The place is one-fifth the size of the state of Kentucky. And yet, it plays an enormous role in geopolitics. And it's a place that everyone has to have an opinion about, even if they don't have an opinion about anything else. People often say that's due to the tragedy of the Holocaust. And I don't want to diminish that. But there's also so much more going on that makes this story fascinating. In one sense, it's the story of an ancient people and culture that returned to their homeland after nearly 2,000 years of displacement. But it's also a story of war and displacement and tragedy for the Palestinians. 
It's a story that's deeply entangled in the 20th century's history. World wars, cold wars, communism versus capitalism. It's also enmeshed in the American story. Just in the last 20 years, it's been part of the war on terror and the rise of the internet age. And then there's the religious stories here. For Jews, it's the land promised by God to Abraham, the home of the temple, the place where the glory of God dwelled in the heart of his people. It's also the third holiest site in all of Islam, the site of the Prophet Muhammad's night journey and a place where Muslims have lived and worshiped for almost 1,500 years. And of course, for Christians, it's the center of the universe. In Jerusalem, just a 10-minute walk from the site of the old temple is the place where Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again. Bethlehem, where he was born, is about a 20-minute drive from there, but it's in the West Bank now, Palestinian territory. Two hours north of Jerusalem is the city of Nazareth, where he lived and worked. It's in Israel, but it's a majority Arab city, with two-thirds of it being Muslim and one-third being Christian. Point being, this story crisscrosses the map of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. For many Christians and Jews, it's a story that awaits fulfillment of other biblical prophecies, and they've been on the edge of their seats in anticipation of that since 1948, when the nation was founded. To put it another way, Israel remains the promised land, and its inhabitants are divided about which promise needs to be fulfilled. Is it God's promise to Abraham to give him and his descendants this land? Is it a prophetic promise to restore and renew it all in advance of the second coming of Jesus? Or is it a political promise, a secular promise, one that's been deferred again and again since 1948 or since Oslo? I wanted to understand these stories better. And so a few weeks ago, when the opportunity came to go to Israel and the West Bank and immerse myself in this story, I couldn't wait to go to meet the people whose lives have been shaped by this conflict, this war, and this hope. And over the next few weeks on The Bulletin, I'm going to share these stories with you. Christianity Today, you're listening to Promised Land, a bulletin mini-series. And today on our show, episode one, The Catalyst. We're starting at the beginning, not of the Israel-Palestine story, but the beginning of this war, October 7th. And we're going to one of the places that was hit hardest, a kibbutz on the Gaza border called Kfar Aza. things that makes Israel fascinating for some people, makes it a turnoff for others. It's this strange intersection of history, theology, and the supernatural. 
three of the world's most influential religions collide here, in Jerusalem, and each one makes claims that something supernatural took place that's foundational to their beliefs. For Islam, it's the Prophet's night journey. For Jews, it's the site of the temple where God's glory was manifest with his people. For Christians, this is the place where Jesus rose from the dead. Because of this, it has a tendency to make people, well, weird. They call it Jerusalem syndrome, this kind of delusional mania that can overtake people when they get here and begin to think that they're the Messiah or some other religious figure that's meant to change the world. Something similar can happen from a distance as well. We all know people who've become obsessed with end times theology and apocalyptic thinking. For a lot of Christians, since the 20th century, Israel's been an object of fascination and intrigue because of books like Left Behind and The Late Great Planet Earth. Some Christian theologians have argued that the reestablishment of a Jewish state was a sign of the end times. A lot of Christians feel passionately about that stuff. But some are turned off by it, too, exhausted even. They hear language like rapture, dispensationalism, supersessionism, antichrist, and abomination of desolation, and their eyes just start to glaze over. Even more, when you tie your politics about Israel to these Christian views, a lot of people start to cringe and change the subject. To start this series, I'm going to avoid all of that, at least for today, for this episode. Instead, I want to focus on the day Israelis are calling Black Sabbath, because it took place on Shabbat, Saturday, October the 7th. And we're going to focus even more specifically on one place, a kibbutz called Kfar Aza, about what happened there and about the stories its residents are telling themselves now about what comes next. I was staying in Jerusalem, so to get there, we had to drive west, towards the Mediterranean, and towards the ancient city of Ashdod. It's a city you see again and again in the Hebrew Bible. It's about 35 miles to Ashdod from where we were staying in Jerusalem. And from there, we basically took a sharp left, south, towards Sderot. Kufar Aza is another six miles past that. All told, it's about a 70-mile drive, though because of traffic and road closures, it takes a couple hours to get there from Jerusalem. That's a reminder of the intense proximity of this place. It's not just Israel and Palestine, but Israel and all her neighbors. Amman, Jordan is about the same distance from Jerusalem as Kfar Aza. The Syrian border is only about 100 miles away, and Damascus is only about 200 miles from Jerusalem. If you were to try to drive to Beirut, it's about 250. Cairo, in the other direction, is about 450, and it's actually a lot less than that as the crow flies. Sterot is an interesting town. It was founded in the 1950s and developed by Jewish refugees from Iran, Kurdistan, Morocco, the Soviet Union, and Ethiopia, among others. It's small for a city, big for a town. About 30, 35,000 people live here. And it has a modern feel, like it could be almost anywhere in the world. It's also been a regular target for terrorism, rocket fire in particular. Since Hamas took control of the Gaza Strip over the past 20 years or so, it's been the target of tens of thousands of rocket attacks from Gaza. On October the 7th, Hamas terrorists infiltrated the town. They killed random people on the streets, on buses, in their cars. They also commandeered the police station. More than 70 people died here that day. 
Check one, two. Check one, two. There we go. South of Sta Road, the train is flat. Industrial farms spread far and wide, as well as buildings and infrastructure for various kinds of manufacturing. The roads were full of military vehicles, too. You could see Gaza in the far-off distance. I kind of expected to hear aircraft or see plumes of smoke, but we saw nothing like that at all. Just before we got to Kafar Aza, we found a station where we were supposed to check in with the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF. They were going to host us, walk us through it, and answer our questions. We also had to stop there to put on body armor and helmets. We were part of a group that included a collection of VIPs from the U.S. and some other journalists. But we were quickly back in our cars and on our way into Kafar Aza. wonder how many people lived here. A kibbutz is kind of a mini socialist utopia. And I don't say that as a joke. When the Zionist movement began in the 19th century and Jews began coming back to this land, socialism was a popular idea, especially for the more secularized among those who were immigrating. These communities were austere. Everyone got the same size, little cinder block houses and the same amount of pay. Kids went off to live at their own little bunk houses, and the kibbutz shared profit among all the members, if there was any at all. They came to this land to farm it and to develop it, and it's basically desert. But even so, the story of the kibbutz movement is an extraordinary success story, and it's part of the mythology of Israel. People who tell the story will often find themselves quoting Isaiah 35, which says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Today, the kibbutz movement looks very different. It's far less austere. Kids get to stay with their parents. They don't wear uniforms. But it's still the heart of progressive Israel. And it's still an extraordinary success story. Only about 2% of the country actually lives on a kibbutz. But they account for almost 10% of the manufacturing and 10% of the agriculture for the whole country. Kifar Aza was founded in the 50s as part of that movement. Today, they no longer run a farm. They run a plastics manufacturing business. We pulled into the residential part of the kibbutz, and everyone got out of the car and began fastening helmets again and shuffling our feet. There was a nervous energy in the air. We'd all been driving for a while, and we knew what we were about to walk into. How's it going? Just uh, one thing, a couple of safety before we continue into the kibbutz. So, one, those that are armed, we were standing there two, three sentences into his presentation and the rocket alert siren went off. Nearby was a structure about the size of a bus stop with a heavy ceiling. It was the bomb shelter. We all packed in, about a dozen of us. Depending on what city you're in, the rocket alerts could give you as much as a few minutes warning to get to the shelter. But here at Kafar Aza, where you can walk to one end of the kibbutz and see Gaza in the distance, 
You get seven to ten seconds. For the residents of Kafar Aza, this is how the day began. It was 6.30 in the morning on October the 7th when the rockets began to fire over from Gaza. During just the first four hours of that day, more than 4,000 rockets were fired. Shortly after that, gunfire could be heard inside the kibbutz and men shouting in Arabic. We're entering now the kibbutz where literally time has frozen. A few minutes later, we were back outside and the tour began. So this is Shabbat, October 7th. 6.45 in the morning, so everything is pretty much the same. Nothing has really changed. We did clear out a lot of the vehicles that were here. And a lot of the, the official tour was fairly straightforward, and if I'm being honest, it was kind of strange, kind of disorienting. Our host was an IDF spokesperson named Maya. You'll hear from her in a second. This is another senior officer assigned to one of the other groups. He kind of looks like the cartoon version of a senior officer in the IDF. He was built like a tank. He wore dark sunglasses, and he was armed like an action figure. It'd be hard to find another place to strap a weapon or a clip of ammunition on his body. He spoke like this the whole time, kind of in a monotone, guiding us through three or four stories that, on their own, were heart-wrenching. But one got the impression that he'd much rather have been in Gaza at the fight than babysitting VIPs or journalists here. Uh, with a gun, he managed to engage some terrorists. But unfortunately, he was killed. He was shot and killed, almost at the doorstep of his house. At the same time, the space itself told the story. It was incredibly compelling. 52 people were killed here that day, and more than 20 were kidnapped and taken back to Gaza. The evidence of the massacre is everywhere you look. Each of these homes were pockmarked with automatic weapons fire. Many were burned out because the terrorists had set fires to try to smoke people out who were sheltering in safe rooms or bomb shelters. Here's Maya explaining the method that was used to try to break in from the outside. By the way, you'll hear some artillery going off in the background of this and some other clips. Yeah, they brought uh, tires with them and gasoline or just deodorants or, you know, they came prepared with the trucks, throw it inside, set it on fire with the goal of them either inhaling the smoke and dying from the fire or running outside the bomb shelter because they can't breathe and then they got shot right out uh, after they got out. And remember, these are small homes, simple, square, maybe 400 or 500 square feet. These people lived like family, intimate, sharing a lot of space. I understand the scripted nature of the tour because militaries have to do this. They have to make their case to the public and the world as for why they're at war. But on the one hand, it was disorienting to hear someone straining to find emotion as they told these stories. And on the other, you felt a certain amount of compassion. Because I can't imagine what it's like to walk through this space confronted with the war crimes and atrocities that took place here. I imagine all of these IDF soldiers are emotionally, spiritually exhausted. This whole area that we're entering is the youth village of the kibbutz. So it's youngsters like continuing age so their parents are settlers of this kibbutz maybe even their grandparents and they want to keep living here or their young students or a couple wanting to set up a life here and this is the area in Kfaraza specifically that got hurt mostly I think because uh, you can see that this is the back gate of the kibbutz and that's where they infiltrated from that's where they started and you can see the damage and again this is 44 days after a lot of the houses have been cleared 
from blood, from objects, from so so this even though still mortifying, this is much better, if you can call it that, than what it was. These houses are simply destroyed. They look like they've been ripped from the inside out, spilling out in front of the house, kind of into the street or walkway that runs between them. Walls, wiring, plumbing, furniture, random belongings, all spilling out like they burst from the inside. The dog you heard barking a moment ago, he's wandering between a few of the houses, wagging his tail. There are two young men in them as well, speaking Hebrew back and forth to one another and carrying boxes out between two of the houses. One of them sees us and turns inside. The other stands on his porch, staring at us, and lights a cigarette. The dog appears to be his. The IDF soldiers walk over to talk to him, and I follow a minute later. It turns out his name is Ofek Hamias. Uh, what's the dog's name? Sunny. Sunny? Yeah. Do you a dog? Yeah. yeah. He's just telling us Sunny. that he's from here. This okay. is his apartment. It's the first time he's back. Yeah. Oh, first time back. Well, first time back after... Uh, yeah. You alright? How are you feeling? You know, it's, uh, it's complicated because... Me and him, we, we lived over there. We were roommates in the house over there. And I was, um, I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home because I, I was at, the, at work in the kibbutz. So instead of going here, I went to my parents' house. We lived down the street, a couple of houses away. But there, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. I have goosebumps like all, all day because, you know, even when I was driving through the area because we got rescued on foot. Mm. And driving through the area we got rescued is... Mm. The guy that lived in this house, his name was Yuval. Nice guy, you know, he has... Uh, he was suffering from heart depression, you know, he's a fragile guy and... Like, just why? Why why kill civilians? Why? Hope there's no ceasefire now. In case you didn't hear that, he said, I hope there's no ceasefire. I asked him why. It was a civilian massacre. It's not there was no agenda, it was not about conquering, it was not about freeing their land or anything like that. It was just about killing as many people as they could. Well, the guy who got killed here, here, and here, they were all civilians. That is the Epstein's house, uh, Neta, the guy who jumped in the grenade, my best friend. Um, That's a name you may have already heard. Neta Epstein's story circulated pretty widely right after October the 7th. He was a Canadian Israeli who lived at Kfar Aza with his fiance. When the attacks happened, they were sheltering together in their bedroom. When Hamas gunmen realized there was someone inside, they broke through the door and threw a grenade in. He jumped on top of it, absorbing the explosion and saving her life. As a result, she was able to remain hidden until the IDF could liberate Kfar Aza hours later. The broader point he's getting at is the character of the kind of people who lived here. This gets back to the point I was making earlier, that the kibbutzim in Israel are the center of the progressive coalition. These were the people who wanted two states, who wanted unity, an opportunity for the people who lived in the Gaza Strip. 
Maya told a similar story a little earlier. There's a family from Kfar Aza that every Saturday would go to the border. By the way, we can see it very close. Um, and they would fly kites in a peace gesture so that it would fly over Gaza. A lot of time it has had the word peace in different languages written on it. That family, by the way, is no longer with us. The people here wanted peace. They were willing to let Palestinians come to work. They were willing to, you know, live together. And now the idea is gone completely. They showed their true faces, you know. After a while, some of the rest of the group began to gather around Ofek, asking more questions. His answer to one of them really drove home this point, that something fundamentally has changed here about the way people like him and this community see Gaza and Hamas. Yeah. No hesitation. No, no. I was hoping I'm gonna have a clear view to the beach, but we're working. We're working. He said he was hoping he'd move back with a clear view to the beach. The only thing separating him from the beach in Kafar Aza is Gaza. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, the kibbutzim are the heart of the progressive movement here in Israel. If a two-state solution is ever going to happen. It's going to happen because of the kinds of people who live and work here. And here you have someone who grew up here, who calls it home, who's eager to move back as soon as he can. But he's lost the vision for an autonomous kind of peace for Gaza. I asked him what he imagines comes next, and his answer was pretty cynical. But not about Israelis, about the rest of the world. They don't allow us to win. They don't allow us to get people back as much as we want to, you know. And I think at the end, it's, uh, it's what's going to cause problems and issues the more we press on. I, I don't know the full picture, but from what I've known for all those 22 years of my life is that um, we were always very close to victory and then the world would say it's too much and then, you know, we kind of said, okay, we'll make it easier, you know, and we did and we had a ceasefire and then five months later, five weeks later, they shoot again, you know. At the end, if, they, if we have a ceasefire with them here, all that's going to come from it is they're going to get more arms, they're going to move the hostage more back, they're going to, you know, there's nothing is going to come out of it in our side. There's a sense in which this is just one example, but it's one example among many. Israel is often a shockingly divided nation, and that's been true in the past few years more than ever. But when it comes to this war, the shock is the unity. The shock is the coalition that has come together to support it. The shock is the turn of people like Ofek, or intellectuals on the left like Fania Oz Salzenberger, and left-wing politicians of all stripes, who've united around this war. Shortly after I got back from this trip, I saw a story about another kibbutz where someone had posted a sign on the front porch that said, remember Amalek. Amalek, of course, is the tribe that I mentioned earlier on this show, the tribe that attacked Israel from behind, the one invoked by Benjamin Netanyahu when he declared the war. It's not a surprise to hear people echoing that in Israel, but it's a shock to hear it coming from a kibbutz. Around the time I heard the story about that sign at that kibbutz, I had the opportunity to sit down with Yossi Klein Halevi, one of the leading public intellectuals in Israel, a writer and a journalist, someone who's been an advocate for the two-state solution for a very long time. We talked a lot about the war and about the story that I'm trying to tell here. You'll hear from him several times on this podcast. 
but we talked specifically about that sign at that kibbutz and about my visit to Kfar Aza. It's so countercultural to the to the left wing kibbutz mindset. Uh, Amalek is this is this well a biblical notion of absolute evil. Amalek is the archetype in in of the ultimate enemy. And that's what we experienced on October 7th. And you know, listening to you, it was so interesting because uh, I'm very uncomfortable with trying to sell a story about October 7th as Israelis as victims. It doesn't, the reason the army is so bad at telling that story is because victimhood is antithetical to the Israeli ethos. And it's, and it's absolutely antithetical to the ethos of the Israeli army. And, and the whole purpose of, of, of the Israeli army is to convey the message that we're not going to be victims anymore. And what was so stunning and disorienting about October 7th is that 1,200 Israelis were murdered in a, in a state of helplessness. Their hands were bound, many of them behind their backs. They were dismembered, burned alive. That's not supposed to happen to Israelis. If you die, you're supposed to die on the battlefield. And so when I say that we're still unpacking October 7th, how could this possibly have happened? How could we have suddenly found ourselves back in a position of being helpless Jews in exile, as if there were no Jewish state, as if there was no Israeli army? And so the trauma of, of, of October 7th is playing out on many levels. It's certainly the mass slaughter of Israelis. It is the atrocities. And I'll, I want to say something in a moment about the atrocities. And it was, and, and I think most deeply, it was the realization that we were helpless. There was a um, remarkable quote I read the other day. It was, it was, an, it was an Iranian journalist clearly in the bag for the the Iranian regime. Well, what, what was interesting about it was that I then saw, I saw it as a talking point show up all over the place online with kind of the, the hostile to Israel left in America that said, uh, well, what we're seeing right now, this is what Jews do. They experience something, they exaggerate their suffering, and then they, because they play the victim and complain, you know, and then and amplify their suffering, they then leverage that to get to do whatever sort of terror and atrocity they, they want to do worldwide. Uh, um, I, I hear in that critique a perhaps unconscious but very uh, pronounced echo of the old, of an old form of Christian anti-Semitism, which is the idea of the Jew as Pharisee. The Jew is Judas, the betrayer Jew, or the, the Jew is hypocrite. That's, that's more specifically, more relevant to this, to this moment. I think that in the minds of many of Israel's critics, Israel is a Pharisee nation. It is the, it is the uh, great hypocrite of nations. We claim to, have, to be the most suffering nation, and yet we inflict suffering on others. We are, are endlessly obsessed uh, with our own history uh, and, yet, uh, and our own rights to the land, and yet we'll deny another people its rights. And so there is something so deep in the Western mind that includes post-Christians, 
<laughs> you don't, you know, in, in many ways, it's, it's, it's a lot easier for me today with Christians, as an Israeli, with Christians than it is with post-Christians. Christians, I think, tend to be more aware of these, uh, these pitfalls, these theological uh, danger zones. And post-Christians aren't even aware of what they're drawing on. And so what I hear in that critique is, yeah, you know, Pharisee, the, the, the Pharisee nation. And um, I don't have a whole lot of patience for it. <laughs> shall, we, <laughs> shall we put it that way? I, um, I, I'm, a, I'm actually glad, though, when those kinds of critiques emerge, because it tells us something essential about why there's so much outrage about this war when there was no outrage about what Assad was doing to his own people, including to thousands of Palestinians, the massacres, the, the extent, the, we talk about proportionality, the extent of, of, of the massacres in the Middle East of, over the last 10, 15 years, and yet this is what triggers the outrage, and I don't believe Israel should be immune to criticism by any means. And, and anyone who knows anything about Israel knows that we're the most argumentative country. I just spent the last year on the streets demonstrating against my government, literally every week, sometimes more than once a week. And so I have no problem with criticizing the Israeli government. I hate this government. And yet, in this war, 90 plus percent of Israelis are behind the government. It's not, it's not this government. It's, this is the decision of the Israeli people because we see this as an existential moment. Back at Kafar Aza, the crowd was starting to disperse. What was this like? Before the seven. Heaven. It was heaven. Yeah. You know, we sat here, we drank beer. After work, we came here late, we stayed here, you know. <laughs> and now this. Sonny, the dog, keeps walking a kind of figure eight pattern around all of us, checking us all out. Yeah, yeah. Is the dog with you? Seven? Yeah. yeah. We were, uh, she, she saved us. Because they, they didn't work. She, she saved us in, in many ways. Um, when we were in the safe room, she stayed with my mom and we were very locked on the door. And then when the terrorists came to check if someone was in the house, the house looked empty from the outside. Usually she barks if someone is at the door and uh, she didn't. She, she stayed quiet the whole uh, 20 plus hours. And we got rescued. Uh, she was hooked to, to my belt. She didn't pull or anything, there was dead bodies and she didn't go to them. And now she can't go away from me, and I can't go away from her. <laughs> she's a good girl. She is, she's a When you talk to people about this war, many who are skeptical or critical of Israel will say, you can't start the story on October the 7th. There's a larger story, a bigger context, that's essential to understanding why October the 7th happened. That's largely true, I think. 
But it's also true that there wouldn't be a war in Gaza right now, or rising anti-Semitic crime around the world, or demonstrations in global cities and on college campuses, or hearings in the United States Congress about anti-Semitism, if it weren't for October the 7th. It's the catalyst that started everything else in this moment. And that's why I felt it essential to start our story here. There's an incredible amount of moral clarity to be found in Kafar Aza. When you stand in the shell of someone's home and smell the residual toxins from a fire that burned in their living room, when you see the bullet holes in the walls, blast marks from RPGs and grenades, when you hear about the abduction of women and children, and friends, and parents, and spouses, you find yourself suddenly allergic to the phrase, it's complicated. Because when it comes to the attacks of October to the 7th, it's actually not complicated. Evil wore no mask that day. It was not seductive. It was not subtle. And as Christians or otherwise, we don't need to qualify those statements when we make them. But that doesn't mean we can't interrogate why there isn't peace, why peace doesn't seem on the horizon, and why things have gone wrong so many times in the past. I also wanted to start here because prior to October the 7th, this is one of the communities most devoted to the welfare and flourishing of the Palestinians. And today that vision's shattered. People are looking for new stories to make sense of what comes next. OFEC is looking for a beach view. Someone somewhere else in Israel on another kibbutz is remembering Amalek. There's at least a half a dozen constituencies inside Israel alone and countless others around the world who would hope to enlist them in a new vision and a new cause. And the question is, which one comes next? What vision offers the right mix of justice and mercy to open the door to peace, prosperity? To put it another way, what are the competing stories in Israel right now? Who's driving them? And how does the Christian story contribute or critique them? How can Christians bear witness faithfully in a time of war, suffering, and grief for our Israeli and Palestinian neighbors? And then one of the most obvious questions is, what does the Christian story have to say to Kafar Aza? I didn't answer that today, but I will. We'll come back to it. First, we need that context, the larger history. We need to ask how we got here, and we need to at least try to understand the weird and wonderful religious background to all of this conflict. So we'll get into it. We'll talk about the Temple Mount and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. We'll talk about red heifers, people longing for the Messiah, and the voice of Christians who are contributing to all of this conversation. We'll also talk about Left Behind and the Iraq War and the various things that have shaped the way American Christians see this conflict today, for better and for worse. That's where we'll pick things up in two weeks. In the meantime, help us spread the word about the series. Leave us a rating and review in iTunes and share about it on social media. of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced, written, and edited by Mike Cosper. Music by Dan Phelps 
Additional music by David Lachance. Our theme song is on Jordan Stormy Banks and was sung by Sandra McCracken. Thanks for listening. See you soon. I like that there was a dog story. There's always a good dog story. Dogs, man. You make it easy. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.